0: The patient was a 36-year-old male. He presented to the emergency department with a witnessed first-time generalized tonic-clonic seizure. From the chart, he had a two-week history of poor sleep, worsening headache, and an inability to read.
1: That's Dr. Justin Smith. He's a rheumatology fellow at the University of Alberta and our guest on Around the Room. Welcome back, I'm Daniel Ennis. And I am Watson to my co-host, Sherlock, Dr. Janet Pope. Welcome back, Janet, how are things?
2: Great, and we're really excited to do another mystery case.
1: Absolutely, so today we're doing the third installment of a special series that we're calling Clinical Pearls and Medical Mysteries, where a colleague brings us a challenging medical case they've been involved with. And we, and of course by that I mean mostly Janet, will attempt to come up with a diagnosis in real time. So before we get to our guest, Uh, a couple of housekeeping notes. If you have questions you would like answered by rheumatology experts, please contact us through the CRA Twitter account at C-R-A-S-C-R room or by email info at room.ca. For future Clinical Pearls episodes, please get in touch if you have challenging cases you want to present on the podcast. All right, now on with the show and our guest. Justin Smith is currently a PGY-5 resident completing his rheumatology training at the University of Alberta in Edmonton. He's originally from Calgary and has an interesting connective tissue disease, particularly lupus and pediatric to adult transition. Justin, welcome to the show. How are you?
0: I am great. Uh, Thank you so much for having me.
1: It is our pleasure. We're really looking forward to this. We really like doing these episodes um, just to try and... Model clinical reasoning and uh, work through some of these really tricky cases that we sometimes see in outpatient or in the hospital. So uh, maybe we'll we'll hand over to you and we'll periodically interrupt you with uh, and pepper you with questions and such. So uh, go for it, Justin.
0: Great. So this was definitely a challenging case. The patient was a 36-year-old male, previously healthy and originally from China but had been living in Edmonton for a number of years now. He presented to the emergency department with a witnessed first-time generalized tonic-clonic seizure. From the chart, he had a two-week history of poor sleep, worsening headache, and an inability to read. He was intubated in the emergency department due to confusion and inability to cooperate with respect to obtaining further investigations and imaging. But otherwise, his vital signs were normal, including being normotensive and being afebrile. He had a CT head that showed symmetric posterior predominant bilateral cortical and subcortical hypoattenuation, slightly more extensive on the right than left. And this was felt to be compatible with posterior reversible encephalopathy syndrome or PRESS he had a concurrent CTA of the head and neck at that time, which revealed no vascular abnormalities. He was evaluated by both neurology and neuro ICU. Um, and he was maintained on leviteracetam or Kepra for his seizures. And he was eventually extubated and transferred to the neurology ward. He did have CNF, CSF analysis, um, which showed... Um, CSF that was colorless, negative for RBCs, negative for white blood cells, a slightly elevated protein of 0.65, with an upper limit of normal being 0.45, and a negative gram stain and culture. So we came into this because in light of his normal tension and absence of any significant medication use, his presentation was concerning for Either a toxic toxic encephalopathy or autoimmune etiology, rather than typical press. And so we were consulted for consideration of autoimmune or rheumatologic etiologies of this presentation.
1: So maybe we'll take just a, a moment to think through how to approach this up front. Janet, you've you've covered the wards um, for for a bit. When you get a case like this, what are kind of the the big things that run through your head like what what are you going to do for these people you're not a neurologist but you're you're a really good doctor what's on your mind
2: yeah so this is a a little bit tricky because um, press can be the final calma pathway of many things and that's why rheumatology got involved a couple things that might be kind of strange is the prodrome was kind of a long time it was a couple weeks of headache it makes you think typical press is In general, they're pretty good, they they feel well, they go hypertensive, they have their seizure, they have press, and then they're way better fairly quickly. Obviously, not everybody. So it would make you think, what was this prodrome? Um, Thinking about the elevated protein very slightly... But no other findings when you look at his MRA, there's no vasculitis. You look at his MRI, and the findings would be in the area of press, symmetrical bilateral changes in the proper areas. So, I guess because we are rheumatologists and because this guy is taking longer, it seems to get better. I think we'd be thinking about well, there's a differential that does include some of our diseases. Um, lupus, systemic vasculitis, etc. But we have no evidence right now of any of those things until we, of course, ask more when we get blood tests. So that's kind of what I'd be thinking. But I really would have a very um, big question mark as to what it is in a fairly broad differential.
1: Yeah, I think that makes uh, that makes a lot of sense. And I also think like in young men, young people in general like of course like making sure that we've done proper tox screening even when we see uh what looks like normal blood pressure trying to interrogate is this actually very high for this person you know some people walk around with really low blood pressures 90 over 60 and so if now they're reading 140 150 over 90 it's actually a huge shift and maybe that you know I I'd, I'd have to back and forth with neurology hey is this could this just be one of your normal causes for press do we need to invoke the autoimmune uh, etiology and i i think justin i might have misheard do we have an mri uh, in in this case or was it ct cta only so far
0: we do not yet have an mri only ct and cta
1: okay okay cool so um, maybe we'll, we'll hand it back over, and you can kind of walk us through what your um, next steps were uh, when you first got involved with the case.
0: Of course. So like any good rheumatology team, we examined him and performed a review of systems, specifically asking those questions. Were there any findings of lupus, any findings to suggest a systemic vasculitis? Um, and so... His review of systems and examination was essentially completely unremarkable. Um, He did have an unknown amount of unexplained weight loss over the preceding six weeks, as well as some fatigue. But it was on the order of a couple of kilograms, is what the patient and his wife thought. But there were no other constitutional symptoms. His examination was really unremarkable for anything we know how to examine, but his neurological examination was consistent with cortical blindness. Um, we, we did send a pretty wide um, host of investigations, and he already had some when we had seen him, but a CBC with differential was completely normal. His creatinine urinalysis... Um, urine protein to creatinine ratio was normal, liver enzymes, LFTs, normal. And we did send a pretty broad, quote-unquote, rheumatologic uh, panel as well, which was completely unremarkable. Complements, both C3 and C4 were normal. ANA, ENA, anti-double-stranded DNA, ANCA, anti-phospholipid antibodies were negative. And he had an RF and anti-CCP for what it's worth, and those were negative we did get an MRI, or neurology did get an MRI of the brain, and it essentially showed similar findings to the CT. So both flare and T2-weighted imaging, revealing extensive vasogenic edema, extending into the parietal and occipital lobes. And after gadolinium administration, there was patchy enhancement of these same areas. So it was felt that this was consistent with PRESS, although the etiology was not yet determined.
1: Okay. So has that narrowed things for you, Janet? Are you confident this is not lupus uh, or connective tissue disease? What have you ruled out uh, that was on your list initially?
2: Right. So with no cytopenias, bland as can be serology, usually we order enough tests, something pops up even as a false positive. Um, okay. so at this point in time I'd probably be wondering I, I'm sure we're going to evolve in this case but almost shifting gears saying was this like a viral etiology that then uh, whether there was a hypertensive episode or not I'm not even sure of to be quite honest but honestly with cortical blindness that seems more extensive than press it's um the occipital lobes aren't traditionally involved like that I don't there's probably case reports, none that I'm aware of, however, of press uh, being associated with cortical blindness. And we have to remember this guy couldn't read or was kind of confused for um, a while before he even came into hospital. So something going on. And I think um, with just some protein in the CSF and no cells, it makes um, a viral um, encephalitis, not ruled out, but less likely. And then on imaging, I don't think there's something that would say, oh, aha, it's got a predisposition to exactly those sorts of areas that we think of as press. But I would still wonder about some kind of encephalitis question mark. Um, And at this point, I'm not, like obviously, room got involved, but I'm not thinking high right now of a rheumatology uh, condition. Is that Mm -hmm. what you'd be thinking, Daniel?
1: Yeah, I think I think it has narrowed it a little bit. Um like it is very unlikely that we're looking at a classic connective tissue disease um or you know scleroderma with hypertension and press from that. Like we're, we're really not getting a clear signal. And I think in those settings the things that come to mind are like okay, well, going to have to th- you know hit the books and think about like all right, what it, it, is this a pattern that we see with you know primary angiitis of the cns do we see this with you know geez i'll have to look it up do we see this with sarcoid do we see this with some of the other kind of you know rarer entities that we bump into um and also when someone's you know having these like something so impressive so aggressive um and you know my gut instinct is wow that's a really weird case I think my heuristic is to think about things like perineoplastic syndromes, and um, and then for a young person, like what could be the sorts of malignancies on the list? You know, I, I, I think that I would at least do, you know, a, a testicular exam, make sure there's no masses, um, also a good opportunity to look for um, ulcers that someone might not be aware of from not that, not that that's the diagnosis here, but but just a, a bit of a two for one while you're already examining someone. Um, so I think I would at least think about those things and I would toss them neurology's way. Hey, um, anything other than a rheumatologic disease because we're not getting that signal just yet. Um, you right, know, right. This is a rheumatology podcast, but uh, I would be putting it back to them to be like, you guys, have, what other neuro tests do you have? Mitogen panel, repeat LP, like what, what's your plan? Is this protein explained by seizure or not, you know, cause and effect of the the protein and the the CSF there? That's always kind of a piece of the story.
2: And thinking even CNS lymphoma, it's um, so symmetrical. No white cells to even do flow on in the CSF because with not that that's always weight loss, but that things like that could occur, a lymphoma. But I don't know. I think it's a big question mark still at this point.
1: Yeah. And and another question for you is uh, because I think this can be a little bit of a crutch in hospital cases. You can get away with pan scanning people. Right. Oh, CT neck to pelvis. Let's just like see what's there. Is that is is this a point where you would say, actually, if we found a whole bunch of lymph nodes, that's really going to help us sort this out. Um, If we found, you know, a big mass in the lung, that's going to help us out. Um, or do you think it's too early to be doing kind of that sort of pan scan shotgun approach for for such a young guy? When would you kind of add that into your uh, investigation? Or never? Maybe you never do that.
2: <laughs> right. So uh, it, it it's hard to say, right? Because in some institutions, you'd get a PET scan because there was albeit mild, a weight mild weight loss, you were trying to mm-hmm. go over the cancers that would be particularly possible in this age group. Um, Again, most of them wouldn't be causing press or even associated with press for the most part. Uh, Mm -hmm. So I don't know that it would help right now. On the other hand, this guy is blind. He's a young guy. I don't know if neuro is going to do visually evoked responses, but this is not an MS pattern currently. So it's um, it's tough. And even ordering viral titers, like for what? For everything? For West Nile? Right. for this, for that, for everything? Totally. It's a tough one still right now. And, of course, we're mm-hmm. always uh, wanting to do shotgun. I don't know what's going on, but since he's not febrile, we'll give him <laughs> glucocorticoids and see if he can see again. And that would be <laughs> treating I don't know what. But I'd be tempted and, at one And point. would you do
1: that at the... Yeah. And and Janet, like, are you there yet? Would you put like, have you met a treatment threshold, even if you haven't met a diagnostic threshold? Like, do you think this is inflammatory? Let's give steroids because he's already blind. Or is this one where you'd say, actually, that's not room's call just yet. This isn't a room case yet. So that's neuro's call for now. Uh, I'll make that call if this starts to take on a roomy flavor
2: so I guess the big problem is is um, I mean it's pretty frightening if you have cortical blindness and we don't want this to persist where it could become irreversible and you kind mm-hmm. of think that, like if you had your two by two table pros cons kind of like that and then if I do it and a con comes if I do it and it a pro comes what happens um, what am I going to mess up in the diagnosis later? So if we thought the guy had CNS lymphoma, he'd have to go off for a brain biopsy. He doesn't have features of that at this point in time with the symmetry, et cetera. So because that you wouldn't want to miss because then it, it could shrink with prednisone and then you're going to mistreat later and miss it. But, right. you know, sarcoid, other things like that could be steroid responsive, Um, you know, it's the wrong distribution, but herpes encephalitis, um, you know, with swelling going on and changes on MRI, people might give someone glucocorticoid tidal for that. So I think I'd probably discuss with neuro and say, we don't really have a clue. We don't think it's our stuff, but this is serious. And what's on your list, what's on could be on our list of differential because we're getting to rare birds now. And with mm-hmm. glucocorticoids help while we're trying to further investigate? So I'd ask mm-hmm. the question. I actually don't know the answer, though.
1: Okay. Well, maybe that's a good place to turn back to Justin, um, if he's hasn't fallen asleep, <laughs> asleep yet. <laughs> um, Justin, so what, what did you folks do as kind of your next tier of investigations or management?
0: Yeah, don't worry. I'm still awake. So <laughs> we actually were fortunate enough that both the rheumatology team... And the neurology team agreed that we had no idea what was going on. And so in our center, it's actually quite easy to get a brain biopsy. And so that was what was actually pursued quite quickly. And I can give you the result of that. So he had a lesion in the right parietal lobe biopsied. And essentially, the result of that showed a diffuse white matter lymphohistiocytic inflammation as well as angiocentric nodular lymphohistiocytic infiltrate with endothelial injury and loss. A further description of that sh- suggested that there was predominantly white matter distribution of this inflammation, uh, with angiocentric foci and endothelial cell sorry endothelial swelling indicating vascular injury. However, the inflammation extended into the white matter parenchyma with many nodular foci of histiocytic infiltrates somewhat resembling granulomas with focal histiocytic palisading noted. Um, The T cells were diffusely distributed. There were CD68 positive histiocytes along with diffuse CD4 and CD8 positive cells. There was no evidence of viral cytopathy including no HSV-1 or 2 CMV or EBV staining, gram staining, PAS, ZN staining were negative for bacteria and fungi, and AFB staining was negative.
2: Ooh, wow. Okay,
1: so that, <laughs> so that sounds like a lot of information or a lot of data, but I, I'm not totally sure that I, um, I'm not ready to, to say that I understand what all of that meant, Janet?
2: Right. Well, I was kind of waiting for the bottom line on the PATH report. Therefore, it's histocytosis yeah. X or is compatible with sarcoid-ish or something. I was kind of yeah. waiting for therefore can be because I don't like we don't think of histiocytes in your brain very much so that they know they're they're pathologically there. Um, but sort of the palisading and some things, this this certainly does not sound like rheumatoid nodules, even though you could have rheumatoid nodules without RA elsewhere, because um, histiocytes wouldn't be our major formation. But some of this um, organization makes me wonder sometimes about some of our, you know, cousin diseases such as sarcoidosis. So I think with the pathologist, they're, they're trying to tell us something with all those words. So I must say I would have cut to the chase, read all the words, and said, and what is in your differential, Dr. Pathologist, because we're needing a lot of help here because we need to know what to do next. And um, kudos for getting a brain biopsy in a timely fashion. It's very difficult in most institutions, and that's where the money was. So well done, even though I don't, still don't know what the money is telling us.
1: Yeah. Justin, did they give some clarity on what what they were actually trying to tell us? So
0: interestingly, in their report, they actually first said that this is not consistent with press at all in terms of the um, histiologic analysis. And they didn't really give a differential. However, the suggested diagnosis was actually a primary angiitis of the CNS is what was suggested to us
2: hmm mm. okay mm. um it's tough to buy it with um because he did have a ct angio he didn't have an mra but he actually a ct angio was probably even better to pick up um angiitis of the uh, like um, cns so um i'm not i'm not fully buying it but in honesty i don't know what the histocytes are doing there so maybe they kind of happen with this condition, I, I don't know, but I'd still be a little bit on the fence.
1: Yeah, I think that's a, that's a tricky one. Like there's a couple different, uh, you know, uh, to my knowledge in terms of like histopathology for CNS vasculitis, there's a couple different groupings of it, but you can have the granulomatous version, the lymphocytic version, and then necrotizing version. And um, I think what I don't know about the lymphocytic Version if if histiocytes is a a common um, kind of cell type in that inflammatory milieu that you get there, you know you did say that there was some angiocentric changes which okay um, like th- those things fit with a a CNS vasculitis. Um, I I think this is the sort of situation where I would bring the imaging to the pathologist and the pathology and and the pathology to the radiologist and just try and square those circles a little bit, like make sure that, that everyone is like, like if we review with radiology neurorads and say like, okay, well the leading diagnosis based on pathology is CNS vasculitis. Is that, is that a putative um, answer to the, does that work? Is that correct? Or is this imaging totally incompatible from your perspective? Um, And I would ask the pathologist for a bit of a differential. If not primary NGIS of the CNS, what else could it be? Um, Any other testing you think is necessary? Any other staining that you feel we need to do to expand that differential a little bit? And I think that's how I would kind of push back on a report that isn't precisely what I would expect for CNS vasculitis. And maybe there's a listener out there who's, uh, you know, Screaming into the void that this is classic CNS vasculitis, but I I doubt it. Um, so I think that's what I'd do. I'd ask more questions because I'm I'm not totally happy that we got to primary NGIS of the CNS, a one in a million diagnosis, quite so quickly. I don't love that, <laughs> so, Jenna. Uh, I agree.
2: I don't. I the pathology just doesn't ring a hundred percent in my mind for this. The location as well. I realize you're you can have it unilaterally, you can have it wherever you, wherever your brain wants it to happen. But in the headache would certainly go with it, the prodrome of the guy couldn't read for a while, all those things could go with that. But um, to be particularly in deeper structures only would be a little bit unusual. From what I've seen, I, I tend to think of it more, and not always, but frontal temporal territories of course it can be parietal but some of this is going way back to occipital and parietal but also um, I think deeper and that's why the press idea kind of made sense at one point potentially so I would yeah I think I would have to um, get a lifeline and um, ask neuro as well some of the experienced neurologists because the teams I'm sure keep changing who the um, MRP is but Have you seen this? What else would this kind of pathology look like as well? Because I think it's a bit out of rheumatology's league because I'm not convinced that we have a slam dunk at this point.
1: Yeah. And I I think also I'm, I'm learning a little lesson as we go, right? The imaging looked like press. It doesn't diagnose press, right? It looked like press. And the pathology looks like primary angiitis or CNS vasculitis, it doesn't mean that that is necessarily the clinical diagnosis, right? If you found vasculitis outside of the brain, it would instantly be that a a systemic vasculitis with CNS involvement, not primary angiitis of the CNS. So pathology can tell you that there's vasculitis. They may not be able to tell you that the primary entity is vasculitis, right? You have to think about the minute you've diagnosed vasculitis, you have to go through that exercise of like, well, is it a primary diagnosis like anchovasculitis? or is it something secondary to infection um, or, you know, malignancy or, or medications, drugs, et cetera. So yeah, I still, I'm not, I, I mean, at some point there's an answer. <laughs> at some point we get to the end of a case, but I'm not sure that I'm like settled yet. Um, so I think I think I would be interested in imaging elsewhere, uh, even as we run this story by neurology. I'd be interested in where else we might find either vasculitis or lymph nodes or maybe granulomatous inflammation, and, and, and uh, maybe that can tie too, it together.
2: I fully agree, and I think this too is where you go back and get more of a history from uh, his wife, or if the patient's able to give it to you, where you also wonder about a family history. Is there some strange thing? But a lot of the strange things in your brain uh, of, uh, say, somebody that's from Asia, and I realize Asia is a pretty big place, but then there's aneurysmal change you'd be thinking of. So it's not sounding like that at this point in time.
1: Okay, so Justin, what, what kind of started popping up next i get the feeling we're not at the end yet
0: no we certainly are not so our differential was very similar to yours so we did not think this sounded like primary angiitis of the cns although the pathology suggested it on report we did have it on our differential however because we still did not know what was going on and in discussion with neurology we also discussed could this be neurosarcoidosis could this be still a lymphoproliferative disorder, including an angiocentric lymphoma or perhaps a perineoplastic phenomenon? So in discussion with neurology, our next steps were we recommended a conventional catheter-directed neuroangiogram for further evaluation of the vasculature. We recommended pet body and brain to look for other systemic foci of inflammation. We wanted to get a different opinion on the brain biopsy. And so it was actually sent to our cancer institute here in Edmonton. And then we also discussed repeating CSF analysis in particular, although there was no pleocytosis sending for flow cytometry as well as some other studies. So I can give you the results of those if you'd like.
2: I like those ordering of tests. So sure, tell us what you found.
0: So, the conventional angiogram was done first. There was no vascular beating, no irregularity or narrowing, and no other arterial abnormalities. So, really, no evidence of a definitive medium or small vessel vasculitis. The PET brain and body revealed a couple things. So, the brain revealed multiple areas of abnormal, intense relative hypermetabolism throughout the areas that we know were involved. And again, this suggested that this was active inflammation rather than edema or press. Now, in the body, there were a couple of findings. So there was mild FDG activity involving the thoracic aorta, bilateral subclavian arteries, bilateral axillary arteries, as well as bilateral superficial and deep femoral arteries. However, the standardized uptake value was only 2.1 max, which was similar to the background liver parenchyma SUV, which was max 2.4 with a mean of 1.8. The interesting thing was that there were two moderately FDG avid pulmonary nodules, one involving the upper lobe and one involving the lower lobe, and the left lower lobe cap uh, the left lower lobe nodule demonstrated some central cavitation. A repeat LP was performed, and at this time, the CSF results were pending.
1: Huh, okay. So now now, now we got some uh, some stuff to work with here, right? So uh, maybe we can address these things in order. Janet, what, what, how much weight do you put on the finding that the pet skin kind of lit up the thor- thoracic aorta and a bunch of branches? Is that impressive to you, or, or do you feel like that's a red herring?
2: Well, when they, when they subtracted, I guess, the, the liver, um, intensity, then it probably became a red herring, but I'd be wondering, oh my goodness, these takiasus, and, um, I don't think of takiasus in the brain getting brain lesions without vasculitis being the etiology. So then, then you have to have two problems. So I think that's highly unlikely, um, I was kind of wondering if we were going to see a bunch of lymph nodes in the mediastinum and then some nodules in the lung thinking about sarcoid with neurosarcoid because they don't have to go together, but they certainly could. So having these high intensity and cavitating ones, we realized that at some point his um, ZN or whatever they do now for the TB stain was negative, but a culture, including the brain culture for TB is going to take time. Um, The location is not pathognomonic for miliary TB. We think the upper lobes and this guy has a cavitary one lower down and he's got another one that I don't know if it's cavitating higher up. So like one's lower lobe, one's a higher zone, but I would still think is this um, a cavitating uh, infection I don't think this is an ANCA vasculitis. We already know ANCA's were negative, but thinking, oh, cavitary lung lesion, but the, it's not really fitting together with uh, what's going on in the brain. So I would say, oh, well, this is interesting, but I think the money might be on the cavitating um, uh, lesion in the lung on the PET scan to try to go at it if it's peripheral enough or uh, either from bronch or from um, a biopsy, a needle aspirate even, but I'd rather have a bit of a biopsy and say, this could really change what's going on, especially because we're still, I've got the holster of the solumedrol in my pocket ready to pull it. (laughs) And I'm not going to pull it right now because it could be infection. It could be malignancy. Um, we might just get necrosis and then the biopsy doesn't help us, but I think the money might be in one of those lung nodules just saying, who yeah. knows, uh, Daniel, what, what were you thinking as you heard with the, um, uh, ascending aorta, but then femorals and elsewhere having a little bit of, I kind of look.
1: Yeah. I, I, and, and I will answer, but I, I definitely picture you with, a um, a vial of solumedrol taped to your back, like, <laughs> you uh, got- like diehard. <laughs> um, I, you know, I, Sometimes, like, when stuff comes back, like, too positive or, like, you know, oh, all the serology is positive, literally everything lights up, then you're, like, okay, well, it's so positive it, like, can't be true. Here, I, I kind of have that same feeling of, like, well, like, if if we're talking about CNS vasculitis, that is small vessel, right? It has not hit any of the medium-sized arteries in the brain. Our conventional angiogram was negative. Our CTA was negative. um well, then we're talking about something variable vessel. And, you know, we have Bechette's and we have Kogan's as, like, technically our variable vessel with a bunch of other types of vasculites that can very rarely affect small vessels and large vessels. Um, it's just not like clicking into place for me, right? And if it was TAC, then how is TAC going to cause CNS vasculitis? That's got to be case report level stuff that, that, that has to be rare, 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 rare. Um, so uh, I'm I, I think I'm going to put that into the likely red herring, but we'll come back to it if we need it sort of category um, and, and put that to the side for a second. I think these cavitating nodules really need to be explored and uh, I think I would yeah, I would holster the steroids for now because in some weird infection that I don't know enough about has to be higher on the list um and uh, you know he's he's born out of country and I don't know what his exposures were and we didn't get deep into that initially so I think that biopsy of that and a uh, good review for potential um exposures and infections is uh that's rank order that's what I would do first that's where we have to go and um yeah considering malignancy that's that's always on the list but we didn't see. The standard lymphoproliferative sort of features of, you know, uh, hepatomegaly, splenomegaly, lots of lymphadenopathy. Uh, so it's it, this is definitely still a weird story, um, but I I think we have a target for investigation. So, cavitating lymph a uh, uh, cavitating lesion does point away from sarcoid, right? Which should be non non caseating or non non cavitating granulomatous inflammation. Though there are definitely case reports of, you know, sarcoid with a bit of, um, you know, necrotizing features to it. It really shouldn't be necrotizing. So um, I'm putting sarcoid lower on the list, but not not off the list.
2: Right. And I'd love to know if there's histiocytes floating around in one of those nodules. Yeah because since i don't yeah. know anything about histiocytosis at but i think a bit more in a lung lesion than in a brain so but i don't really know mm-hmm. enough about it so yeah we we want more tissue
1: totally all right justin so what, what did you folks do next oh and and can i ask justin why did you folks think primary cns vasculitis was was low likelihood at, at the beginning? Like, how did you get there? I, I know how Janet got there, mm-hmm. but what was what was on your mind? Why didn't you believe the uh, the biopsy up front? So
0: when we read the biopsy report, it was almost a chicken and egg as to whether the vessels were actually the cause of this inflammation or if there was just such a destructive process in the white matter that there was essentially um, obliteration of those vessels. Um, We felt that there were also no SWI or DWI changes on MRI to suggest any sort of micro hemorrhage or um, ischemia. And then again, the CTA and conventional angiogram was normal. So we felt there were just too many negatives in a sea of unknown.
1: Fair enough. Okay. So what did you folks do? uh, What did you do next? How do you pursue those new findings?
0: So we agreed that we did not think that the large vessel FDG uptake was uh, relevant um, and was probably a red herring. We did go after those nodules. And so um, he initially had a bronchoscopy, which overall was unremarkable. And then because these lesions were not amenable to biopsy by bronch, he actually was transferred to a different hospital in our city to thoracic surgery, where he underwent a wedge resection and also had mediastinal lymph node sampling of a subaortic lymph node. Ultimately, that pathology came back. We thought that was going to be the money, but essentially it was consistent with a focal resolving pulmonary thromboembolism. There was no evidence of vasculitis, sarcoidosis, malignancy, AFB staining was negative, and a complete infectious screen, I'll tell you, was negative. Wow, Wow. we're striking
1: out, eh? (laughs) Oh, boy. So I can add add at
0: this point, if you'd like, Mm -hmm. we felt that given that infection was essentially very low on the differential, and this patient continued to deteriorate with worsening headache, worsening level of consciousness, persistent cortical blindness, and new hallucinations, we decided with uh, with neurology that we would initiate solumedrol. So he was given a gram IV daily for five days. And he responded remarkably to the steroids. So headache improved significantly, almost disappeared. Um, his vision actually improved. Hallucinations uh, stopped. He was able to see colors and count fingers and so what we learned is that he has a steroid responsive disease and that's where we were at <laughs> wow
1: oh boy okay um all right jenna w- what do you think uh, at this stage
2: well i mean i don't think he's what we used to call ssv some sort of vasculitis i just don't <laughs> think i think the vasculitis, the blood vessel, isn't the issue. It's the mat- the white matter and the other changes from the inflammation. Um, mm-hmm. Again, I don't think any of these um, strange post-viral encephalitis pictures would respond as fast to glucocorticoids. And because um, when things were stained and cultured for what most people would think about it was um, benign, it was negative – so um i think he has neuro's problem but that that we <laughs> yeah. now are probably uh, going to have to think of a prednisone sparing drug or at least see what happens as you lower the doses a couple things i'm mm-hmm. not sure why they went the full five days but this guy was blind starting to get confused and hallucinating and deteriorating so um I, I wouldn't have a big judgment of five days of five grams instead of three days of three grams, because then he would be going on to um, oral low-dose solumedrol or oral, um, well, not low-dose, um, 60 to 80 milligrams or oral prednisone 40 to 60 or something like that, depending on his weight, et cetera. But you're, we're eventually going to say, well, what kind of steroid sparing drug is this guy going to get as if you lower and things worsen because we don't even know what the diagnosis is it was prednisone deficiency syndrome but that's not a diagnosis
1: (laughs) and what would be um you know we know that he has a lymphohistiocytic inflammatory disorder on biopsy does that influence the choice of your um you know, steroid sparing or your other medication that you'd be thinking about at this stage?
2: You know, I don't know that I'm smart enough to say what, like, whether a drug that's pretty pan-immune suppressive, what I would be thinking about is what can get into the brain of this person. And the usual sort of um, things we think about are, well, cyclophosphamide or rituximab. Um, certainly, mm-hmm. with a leaky blood-brain barrier, and that's what he would have in some areas because he has the inflammation. You we could think about um, possibly azathioprine, but I think he's was sick enough with uh, significant neurological impairment that it's either cyclophosphamide or rituximab in my mind. But that doesn't mean something less aggressive. If he got great and you were able to get his prednisone down to you know, 10 to 15 milligrams before symptoms came back. But I doubt that's going to be the case. I think he's going to need one of our heavier duty drugs. Hmm.
1: And Justin, can I ask, so the the lung biopsy, you told us that it it didn't show anything compatible with all of those diseases. Did it show anything at all? Or was it just pure necrosis? Or was there granulomatous inflammation of any kind? Or was there anything inflammatory? Or it was just kind of It was necrotic nothing and like nothing to see there at all. Just trying to like, are there any clues anywhere that's going to lead to tying these two things together? Because why does this um, 30 something year old gentleman, why does he have a necrotic anything? 36 years old or
2: something. He's lying around the poor guy.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Um, But I just like it's, if it's truly nothing and we're saying, Oh, that's just coincidentally there. That's a, it's a tough coincidence to, to stomach. I'm wondering if there was anything to see.
0: So that was actually our question. And I'll come back to that because we still have an outstanding CSF analysis that was repeated. Mm. And so okay. we actually, so he had a repeat LP and CSF this time was sent for all the usual suspects, but was sent for flow cytometry, despite there being no pleocytosis. And sorry, my computer froze. Um, That's
1: okay. It's building suspense. It
2: is. Yeah. It
0: is. So, the flow ty- flow cytometry actually showed an abnormal sub- abnormal subset of presumed T cells, suggestive of T or NK cell lymphoproliferative disorder. So, at that point, we were thought that we. We're on the right track. So we had a phone consultation with hematooncology. However, they had a look at the case, and they told us that they felt that this abnormal T-cell population was reactionary to a systemic process, but would discuss this at their multidisciplinary lymphoma rounds. But given his ongoing symptoms and accrual of damage, in discussion with everybody involved, we decided to initiate cyclophosphamide 750 milligrams per meter squared given his dramatic response to steroids and so that was given
1: mm. it, it, you know sometimes sometimes it feels when we're um working on these cases in real time it feels like people are really trying to not call it lymphoma when like <laughs> the, I, the evidence we're getting is suggesting that lymphoma um, yeah yeah lymphoma adjacent um jenna do you feel like oh okay this is uh, are you compelled that this is a lymphoma or lymphoma spectrum disorder or um, you you buy their, uh, their skepticism?
2: Well, I mean, if their rounds, if their multidisciplinary rounds are in three months, it's not going to help us anyway, right? And they're no. looking at path and, you know, we're all, everything's kind of evolving. But um, I guess put it this way, a lot of our treatments are going to overlap, but proper treatment of a lymphoma, it could be, you know a chopper ish thing and if we're just doing a c and a glucocorticoids we're not doing this guy justice and also Mm -hmm. i don't know if cns lymphoma gets radiation in their head but they certainly can get intrathecal methotrexate things like that that we would have no idea about uh, prescribing or recommending Mm -hmm. so um I think you'd probably have to say, well, we're committed to high-dose cyclophosphamide, ongoing glucocorticoids, lowering them, and to uh, probably even consider a month or two from now if things aren't going in the right direction as he's being tapered off the glucocorticoid for once again doing flow on the LP. Because that is, um, although obviously invasive for him, that might be the best way to say is there a population of cells that is truly monoclonal at this point in time? So Mm -hmm. that's kind of what I'd be thinking. But, um, you know, sometimes we, we think we know the right drugs, but we actually, I don't know the right diagnosis in this guy. And I would always Mm -hmm. say, you know, don't have that sort of, um, diagnostic, um, blinders on where you say, um, this, this patient's, re- you know, responding to these drugs, the full diagnosis is NYD. I try to actually tell the trainees and myself as well to dictate that, you know, the read between the lines is I don't really know what's going on. We're treating, he's getting better, but I think we have to be open-minded that we could really be on the wrong highway.
1: I think that's like a super important lesson um, to like keep keep some tool in your notes so that you know when you've finalized the diagnosis and when you're still in the uncertain phase so labeling it as possible or probable um, you know w- whatever the label is I think can kind of orient you to like like keep you humble in terms of orienting you to how, how your level of certainty um, you know while we remain uncertain and we find this aberrant uh, t-cell population I think um, I would also run by, cause on a couple of cases here in Vancouver, we've made a diagnosis of, uh, lymphoma on skin biopsy. I'd, I'd run that by, uh, the hematology service if that would be valuable, um, as well.
2: But Daniel, and, without uh, skin lesions yeah. though, like just regular skin biopsy or on, on a nodually rash thing? I, I
1: think... I think that you can find it on like if you find a little like cherry angioma, which many people will have one or two um, that can even tell you about it. Um, so, I, I, you know, those are tests that I don't I don't routinely do, but I would um, I kind of think about here because we're trying to tilt the scales towards rheumatology or away from rheumatology because I think we can get stuck Um, because we have our fingers in many different pots, we can get stuck treating someone who never had our disease and never fit one of our disease patterns and had an MRI that doesn't look like standard CNS vasculitis, but that's like the best anyone can come up with. And then we're stuck treating what ends up being a CNS lymphoma um, or an angiocentric lymphoma of some kind. Um, So uh, yeah, I, I would remain uncomfortable and, um, I'd ask them to do their rounds a little bit sooner <laughs>
2: three, and Then three, three months. Like, <laughs> yeah,
1: that is that is not helpful. <laughs> Get on the phone, call who you need to, and the person's admitted to the hospital and really sick. So this isn't one of those, uh, you know, um, one of those <laughs> right. like, well, well, we'll wait and see. I don't know. <laughs> and, and I
2: guess at this point, is the MRI becoming more extensive or is it still in the same les- same area as before?
0: Yeah, his MRI was actually stable, stably hmm. bad.
2: Stably bad, <laughs> right. and he's not great <laughs> other than the prednisone kind of woke him up in a good way.
1: Exactly. All right, so um, Justin, what, what kind of happened next in this story?
0: So I promise we're almost done in this journey. So they did actually have their lymphoma multidisciplinary rounds relatively quickly, within weeks. And nice. after... Nice all of the discussion regarding all of the imaging, it was still felt that a T-cell lymphoma was unlikely and that this population of abnormal T-cells may not be neoplastic. And as he had been on steroids and cyclophosphamide, had no significant cytopenias, there was no uptake in bone marrow on PET-CT, it was felt that a bone marrow, would, a bone marrow biopsy would essentially have next to no yield. But given the lack of clarity and this question of malignancy, it was agreed to be performed. And then prior tissue samples from brain, skin, and then also, sorry, brain, lung, and also peripheral blood were sent off to um, both NIH as well as another lab to test for TCR, uh, TCR gene rearrangement analysis to assess for monoclonality. So I can give you the results of those if you'd like.
2: Right, because we still think it's not our stuff, but we'll we'll see if it is or not.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So you'd be right. This was not one of our things. So it was actually the bone marrow biopsy that confirmed the diagnosis. So flow cytometry of the bone marrow aspirate showed a T-cell population of cytotoxic immunophenotype consistent with large granular lymphocytic or LGL leukemia. Oh. It was positive for... um, the detection of monoclonal T-cell beta and gamma chain gene rearrangement. These te- these findings were also positive in the lung biopsy, with the brain biopsy being indeterminate for detection of a monoclonal T-cell receptor uh, chain gene rearrangement. However, it was felt that when looked at that the inflammatory changes were consistent with a T-cell monoclonal population most uh, consistent with an, in, in, an indolent circulating lymphoproliferative disorder. So the final diagnosis was a T-cell uh. large granular lymphocytic or TLGL leukemia involving the brain, lung, and bone marrow.
1: My goodness. I mean, not that indolent, right? Uh, like, not not clinically that indolent. This guy was incredibly sick. What, like, Janet... Teach me a lesson here. Like, what what are we to take away from this? That you know, we were told from the beginning that is probably not a lymphoma. It's still probably not a lymphoma or, or leukemia. A, a bone marrow biopsy is not going to be helpful. Don't bother. Um, right. What do you do with that? How do you how do you What's the lesson? So here?
2: I think the lesson is we we can't do eboxemia. You can't just throw it into a box if it doesn't fit. Number one. Number two, the speed of this guy getting sick from presumably pretty well to having difficulty reading to actually a severe headache and going blind and uh, going psychotic, so, so to speak, all from the process speaks more to infection or a more rapid uh, lymphoproliferative malignancy quite type thing than a lot of things we deal with. And actually, frankly, than a lot of things that neuro would deal with on the chronic disease spectrum. Like this was not some demyelinating chronic process that they're used to, distribution wrong, etc. That's the first thing. The second thing is you, you got to follow your gut because... I might have even given this guy solumedrol earlier and I would have kept saying, but what are we missing? And if I keep treating, even though we have to make this guy better, well, we're, we got to still keep looking because it just doesn't, it doesn't, it didn't bode well. It didn't fit right. Um, so uh, I think location, the, the depth of what was going on and because um, it's not brainstem, it is where press could have been, but it didn't, it didn't all make sense. That's also not a common spot for um, CNS vasculitis or angiitis. It's just, it could be there. I'm sure there's case reports of every single structure in the brain that could be involved, but it's not our classical, you know, we, I think big lobes, not so deep in general. So I think a lot of those things, um, to have all these multidisciplinary groups together and saying, what the heck? The other thing is that biopsy was disturbing because since, on, honestly, I don't know much about histocytes in the brain. I don't have a clue, actually. That's where I would say, you know what? This just doesn't sound like our stuff. Neuro says it doesn't sound like their stuff. It's like a ping pong ball. So who are you going to send it to? And I guess that's where, mm-hmm. you know, you'd want to know. Um, again, usually it's the older chemonk that has seen something like this that's, um, you know, not common and is a diagnostic dilemma so I think there are some of the things get, get a helpline get other disciplines involved talk to each of the groups and try to reach consensus but not trying to make a label because um, you know all along it just seemed not really like our stuff
1: totally I, and I'm curious um, and Justin and Janet you can both comment on this did the brain biopsy help or not help because it's, it's always an important part of, like all of all of these cases that, well, the tissues, it's in the brain that's really el- usually eloquent, and we don't want to biopsy that unless we have to. Um, and then sometimes we get the biopsy and we don't even know what to do with it. Did it orient us uh, in this case? Was it more confusing than not? Would we have come to the same diagnoses without the brain biopsy? Would we have gotten there as quickly? What was the value here in the end? I know I know it's all in retrospect so this isn't for criticism but it's just to try and, you know, integrate this for the next time we see something similar. Do we do we go for the brain first or do we Look for something in the lung. Look for something in the abdo first.
2: What do you think? Usually we can't get a neurosurgeon to do it. So then you start (laughs) going everywhere because (laughs) they say we don't like to do it. We don't want to make a person, et cetera, et cetera. But where I felt comfortable on the brain biopsy was not the conclusion of the uh, vasculitis because we weren't really buying it at that point. Where I felt comfortable was all these viruses, including stuff that I've rarely heard of, um, that causes encephalitis and things that can be focal, and even um, you don't want to miss um, varicella or, or herpes one. You just, it, I think I felt comfortable that all that stuff was tested for on in the brain because um, if we miss that, that you know that could be something where the person it could be lethal or the person is really maimed or we could have had antiviral treatment, and so I think we. We narrowed things down and spared inappropriate treatment because, you know, the antivirals would have given the guy some kind of, um, you know, a cytopenia. We would have barked up the wrong tree, whatever. It just might have caused more uh, confusion. I don't know, Justin, what, what would your thinking be that the brain biopsy was helpful or it could have really misled us or both?
0: I agree. The brain biopsy almost pigeonholed us to prove that it was not CNS vasculitis And so I think it also, because we were not convinced, did open up some doors to say, well, then prove that it's not something else. And so that's where all these other tests, you know, the PET scan, um, biopsies of other lesions came in. And so I think that it did point us in the right direction in the end, but maybe not for the right reasons.
1: I think that there's almost like a lesson here, and I keep learning this uh, early in clinical practice, is that there's a reason that we start with history, physical exam, you know, basic investigations, anterior investigations. Like there's a reason why we try, even in rare diseases, to come up with a pretest probability before we do a thing. Because it turns out that um, the tests we do often can... Uh, cause, lead to more questions than they answer and you still need to synthesize the data and come up with an explanation for the the test you did and so sometimes it adds more chaos uh, and more entropy uh, than it, than it um, undoes so in this case it seems like you started from a place of this doesn't really sound like I haven't seen a CNS vasculitis present quite like this you started from that and then worked your way out from there. Um, and so you still used clinical, uh, decision-making to, to not close the diagnostic door, right. To, to keep, to keep looking. And, and so, uh, I I think you did that. That's an incredible job. I, I hope I would have done something similar, but that's a very tough case. Well, Justin, thank you so much for, um, presenting such a such a challenging case, it was a real pleasure to try and uh, work through that um, with, uh, with you and Janet. Any uh, closing thoughts on, on your side?
0: Yeah, so I think the interesting thing is this is the one leukemia that we sometimes see as well in RA patients that have Felty syndrome. Yes. So I'll tie, it, I'll tie it back to rheumatology that way, even though it didn't end up being our <laughs> disease in the end.
1: Totally. Uh, yes. Yeah. So, Justin, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Uh, Janet, thanks so much for uh, walking us through all that. And uh, maybe we'll we'll leave it there for today, but uh, looking forward to our, our next, uh, our next uh, tough case.
2: And we really want our listeners to present a case. Um, Justin did an excellent job, and these things are complicated, and by presenting and reviewing, I think you can learn so much.
1: Totally. All right. Well, thanks, everyone. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thank you. That's it for this episode of Around the Room. For questions, comments, and future episode ideas, email us at info at room.ca or tag our Twitter account with your question at C-R-A-S-C-R room. Around the Room is produced by David McGuffin, Dr. Dax Rumsey, and Aaron Stewart. We'd like to give a special thanks to the Communications Committee and the staff of the CRA for their hard work. And of course, an extra special thanks to Dr. Justin Smith. And of course, Dr. Janet Pope. A theme music was composed by Aaron Fontwell. If you enjoyed your time with us, please give us a rating and write a review wherever you listen. It helps people find the show. And be sure to subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. Until next time, I'm Daniel Ennis. Thanks so much for listening.